Okay, this morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men among good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramius, and Nicholas, and the, a proselyte of Antioch. These they sit before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Good morning, everybody. Have you ever been to a church that has problems? Anybody? Not everybody all at once. You know, we have this idea in our mind that because God is perfect, because Jesus Christ is perfect, because the church is the bride of Christ, that every church should be perfect, right? But there's this corny old church joke that if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it, which there's a lot of truth in that because the church is an already and a not yet. It is already the bride of Christ, the perfect bride of Christ, but not yet perfect in practice, right? It is already bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, but not yet purified like we will be one day. It is already God's beloved family, but not yet free from sinners like you and me. See, every church is really a congregation of sinful people who are trying to follow Christ, who are being transformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus. But transformation, even in and of itself, <laughs> lets you know that there's still work to be done. But the fact that we're still being transformed means that we're going to bump into each other and we're going to take some elbows. And if we all gather together, there's going to be some discord. That's the nature of the church. And what God has done is he's established a plan for the church to function that reflects his own character and image. See, what we talked about in the first two chapters of Acts is the church is the harvest of the people of God. That the day of Pentecost was the harvest of what God started in Jesus Christ. He was the first one to live a perfect life. He was the first one to rise from the dead. He was the first one to give his life for others. And then God raised him up to show that his payment for all sin cleared. So what happened on Pentecost was God sent down the Holy Spirit and said, what started with Christ is going to be continued by you all. And from that day forward, what the church has been doing is by the Spirit, finishing, completing, being God's hands and feet on earth, the body of Christ, doing his work here in our communities, in our families, with our people. And so we've been commissioned by God to carry out this work. But, like I said earlier, we are imperfectly carrying out the work. 
So last week we talked about the community of faith, the perfect community that God had before anything was created, and that the church is an extension of that community. The reason we know that is because our primary community is with God himself. This is what John wrote uh, in the, to the early church in 1 John. He says, we write this to you so that you can be a part of our fellowship, and our fellowship is with God. And we write this to you so that our joy might be complete. The joyful community of God. That's what we want to be as a church. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, this perfect description of the church that you got in chapter 2 already has some problems. In fact, there's a problem that arises in the passage we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that threatens the very nature of the church itself. See, this isn't just a little logistical problem as we sometimes read this story. This is a threat to the community of God. How can you have a community who is selfless? No one has a need. Everyone is giving to stay on mission. Everybody's committing themselves to fellowship and the apostles' teaching and prayer and breaking of bread. And then you have a group of people who are intentionally being neglected. That's the problem the church arrives at in chapter 6. And so what I want to talk today, kind of to wrap up this three weeks we spent on the church, is what is church leadership? Why do we have leaders? What are the leaders? Who are they? How do we pick them? And in the early section of of the book of Acts, we get to see a template for how God has designed his church to function and how it should be led. So leadership is kind of a complicated word. Everybody loves leadership. You can tell this because I walked into a Barnes & Noble yesterday, and the leadership section is like twice as big as the other sections. I mean, there are so many books on leadership and organization management and all the things that go into starting something and leading something and building something. We are fascinated with this. And I think the flip side is part of the reason we're fascinated is because this is such a loaded term. We are in a leadership crisis as a culture. We don't trust leaders We don't assume the best about leaders. Many of us don't like leaders. Many of us want to be a leader, but then when you become a leader, you're like, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was when I was criticizing the leader I used to be following. Leadership is really difficult. Maybe that's just me. Okay, too honest. All right, I get it. But when you become the leader, you realize, man, there are a lot of perils for leaders, and the church is supposed to have a certain kind of leader. So what I want to talk about this morning is four qualities of biblical leadership, four qualities of church leadership that we see in Acts chapter 6. So the first one is the leaders of the church are chosen to keep the church devoted to its mission. The leaders of the church are chosen to keep the church devoted to its mission. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, we get a great template for what they thought, what the early church thought they should be committing themselves to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it describes that if you devote yourselves to things, you will create a kind of community, a kind of relationship. We talked about the word koinonia, which is the word for fellowship in the Greek. And it means commonality. Not just we have something in common like we have a friendship or we have a shared hobby, but the most common thing you could ever have, which is I too have been bought by the blood of Christ. We as a church have that in common. And the picture we get is if you have that in common, you can navigate any other differences. So they devote themselves to people, 
They devote themselves to the truth, to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to hospitality, generosity, worshiping together, and they devote themselves to prayer. And so that is the marching orders for the church. We're going to devote ourselves to these things, and we're not going to allow anything to take us off of that mission. Their devotion was central to the Great Commission, which is Jesus giving the authority to the church. These are the marching orders to go, and as you go to the ends of the earth, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What the early church knew was, if you stray from that mission, you will lose the community of the church. So you got to be committed to that. And the church is the only organization in the world that has that mission. The Great Commission, this devotion. We are the only organization in the world that has that mission. And the church does other things, right? The church does charity work, but the church is not a charity. It's not primarily a charity. There are charities who their central mission is to alleviate some kind of injustice or poverty in the world, and we want to participate in that. We want to make the world a better place. We want to see people flourishing, but we want to see it as an outflow of what our central mission is, which is to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth and teach people what it means to live reunited with God. The church brings people together, but it's not a social club. There are other ways that we can build really strong relationships, and we do want to build strong relationships in the church. And in fact, I think in this church especially, we build really tight relationships, but it's always downstream from our mission, fulfilling the Great Commission. The church teaches, but it's not primarily a seminary. Seminaries are seminaries. We teach to the end goal that we will be transformed to fulfill what God's called us to do. You get this. There's a lot of things that we do, but there's one central goal for the church. And you've got to stay on that central goal. So the apostles decide we've got a problem that threatens our central goal. We've got something that is so threatening to us that it, it will basically destroy the church or take the church off mission. Notice in Acts chapter 6 how they frame up this issue. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, who we'll talk about in a minute, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. This is how you know how serious it is. The twelve, the apostles, eleven plus the new apostle, Matthias, and they gathered the whole church which this wouldn't just be the 120 that they had at the day of Pentecost. This would be like 5,000 people that have now come to Christ in the opening days of this church. Because remember, Peter stands up and gives this awesome sermon, and 3,000 people are joined to the church that day. Then later we see another couple of thousand people, and God is adding to their number every day. And this is such a problem. They call together everybody and say, we've got to do something about this. Now, what do the apostles do? This is really interesting how they approach this problem. They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Okay, I'm reading from the ESV, and sometimes you'll get a little bit different word at the end of there, but this word serving tables just strikes us as so odd. <laughs> We're not going to give up preaching the word to go into the restaurant business, is kind of what it sounds like. But that word is the word that we typically use to mean service. It's actually the word we get the word deacon from, which we'll talk about later in this sermon. They say it's not right for us to forsake part of our devotion, part of our mission for another. 
See, what the apostles knew was we can't pit the mission of the church against itself. If they're going to commit themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to worship, breaking bread, and to prayer, the apostles said, we have been called by God to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And in fact, since it's called the apostles' teaching, the apostles at this point are really the ones that should be doing it. So they say, we don't have enough time in the day, we don't have enough hands around the community to do all of these things at once. But what we won't do is sacrifice one for the other or give up one entirely. So here's what we've got to do. They say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we are going to appoint them so that the church can continue to fulfill its mission. We are not going to settle for just the apostles' teaching and prayer, but we're not going to give up the apostles' teaching and prayer for devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship. We are going to pursue all of what God has called us to do. So the apostles decide to do this, and one of the lessons we get early in this story is the church does what it does to fulfill the mission that it's been given. Right? In the business world, we would call this culture, the culture of the organization. And most people know the Peter Drucker saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right? You can make all the plans in the world, but if you have a culture that is actually anemic, if you have a culture that is detrimental, if you have a culture that undermines all of your great plans, none of what you envision is going to happen. Culture is the driving part of any organization, and it's the same thing in the church. But to put it a little differently, I might describe the church part of it this way. Character in the church will eat all of our programming for lunch. If you don't have godly character, if you don't have people that are devoted to the mission of God, you can have the best programs, the flashiest advertising, the greatest community service outreach, and you will lose the mission of the church. What the disciples were concerned about is, let's find people who embody this devotion, and let's empower them to continue the mission of the church. Because notice this, they don't pick the most talented people, and there's nothing wrong with, with talent. They don't pick the most talented people. They don't pick people that have certain gifts. They say, find us some people who are full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, devoted to what we're devoted to, and let's empower them to help us continue the mission. It's easy for the church to replace the really important eternal things with really urgent temporal things. In fact, you might have been in a church that's done this. It's very easy to drift towards what's right in front of us, what's immediate, and then you look up after a few years and you're like, we're not doing any of the things that we're truly called to do. It's easy for the pragmatic to replace the convictional. We just do what works, and all of a sudden we realize nothing's working because we're aiming at the wrong target. It's easy for the church to allow what people say to drown out what God says. These are common mission drifts in every church. And that's why we, like the early church, have to choose leaders consistently, not just once, consistently, and remind ourselves we have been given a mission by God. We're the only people that have that mission. Everybody can be a part of it. We've got to stay true to our mission. The second thing that I mentioned is leaders are chosen for character and godliness. Now, this is really essential to any organization, but it's especially essential to the church because the problem they're having is a character problem. And it might not seem that way to us because we're not as familiar with the dynamics, but what the problem is is the Hellenists are being skipped over in the distribution by the Jews. Now, what is a Hellenist? Okay, Hellenists are Greeks, 
The word Hellenic means Greek, and that's, that's the way the Greeks would have described themselves, is Hellenists. And this means people that are participating in the church that only speak Greek. They are from the outer world. They may not have grown up in Jerusalem. They probably didn't grow up Jews. They don't speak Aramaic. They don't necessarily know the Torah as well. They have come to the church from the outside. These are the Hellenists. And what's happened is the the synagogues and the temple, the Jews, had a system of distribution. And what you would do is if you were a widow who qualified or if you were a person who was an orphan or somebody that was unable to work, you would come to the distribution and at the temple or the synagogue, they would give you food every day so that you could eat. And in fact, if you read the Old Testament, you can hardly escape the fact that society is built around helping people who really need help. Think about the story of Ruth, for example. They come and Boaz doesn't glean to the end of his fields because you're called in Leviticus to leave some for the people that need it. So the Jews already have a system like this. And the apostles essentially just continue doing that as a church. But here's the problem. Hellenists and Jews never did anything together. They hated each other in a lot of ways. The Jews and the Gentiles did not get along. If you were a Gentile, you could not come to the temple to receive the daily distribution. You had too much bad blood, too much animosity, too many cultural differences. This is racial, it's socioeconomic, it's religious. This is a hard line divide. And what happens in the church is they decide to do things the way they used to do instead of the way God's called them to do it, and they begin to neglect the Hellenist widows in their body. So all of a sudden, the apostles realize we've got a whole section of our church who is being discriminated against, who is being overlooked, who's being intentionally neglected because people are going back to the way they did things in the world, not the way we're supposed to do things in the church. So this problem actually goes to the very heart of what the church is doing because just four chapters earlier it said, and no one was needy among them. And they had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions to make sure that anybody who needed anything had it. So how do you have a church where no one is in need And then all of a sudden, this whole group of people is being neglected. That's why the apostles call the whole church and they say, this is not what we're called to do. In fact, we're going to make sure that we intentionally take care of the people that our flesh, our old self, the way we used to do things would tell us to neglect. Now we're going to reach out. We're going to take care of them. And we're going to appoint people for this very purpose. So a lot of our problems come down to the same thing in the church. Are we going to do things the way we're used to doing them? Are we going to do things in a way that's culturally acceptable? Are we going to do things that relies on maybe the things that we have had so ingrained for our whole life? Or are we going to do things the way that God says to do them? That's really the question with every church conflict. If you go deep enough into the issue, it is, are we going to do things our way? Or are we going to do things God's way? And the early church says, we are going to do things God's way. Now, part of this is because of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which we didn't cover in this series. God has made it very clear the early church needs to do things his way. And they say, we're going to appoint seven people for their character, for their godliness, for their integrity, for their witness, and they're going to help us solve this problem. When you get healthy leaders, spiritually mature, godly leaders, the community flourishes. That's the story of the entire book of Acts is when you get people who are surrendered to what God is doing, you see the community flourish. Number three, the leaders are not just chosen for their character and godliness. The leaders are actually called by God to point to Christ. The leaders are called by God to point to Christ. 
You know, Christ is the head of the church. This is easy to forget. No human being, no person, no organization has complete say over the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He founded it, he sustains it, he will purify it, and in the end, he will take it to himself as his bride. He will forever be the head of the church. In fact, in Colossians 1, it says, God has put all things under his feet. He's the firstborn of everything, and you see that primarily through the church. The head of all things in the church is Jesus Christ. And so every leader, every volunteer, every pastor, every elder is an under-shepherd, an under-leader, an assistant leader, somebody who ultimately is serving Christ by serving his church. And it's really, it sounds very simple, but it's easy to forget this. We're all susceptible to think, oh, we're, we're the ones who are really in charge here. No, we have a borrowed authority on behalf of Christ you know, Peter is one of my favorite apostles because Peter always says the stuff that most of us would probably say if we had the courage. He just says it, you know. And when Jesus comes out on the water, Peter just jumps out into the water. And when, you know, things go wrong, Peter's the one that pulls out his sword and cuts off the servant's ear. I mean, Peter, Peter is the guy that just lunges forward to do everything that you probably would want to do but may not have the courage to do. And Jesus walks with him consistently. And in fact, by the end of this, we see Peter really is the leader of the disciples. He really is the one that has the most say. He's the one that stands up on Pentecost and gives a sermon on behalf of the other disciples. And you just look at the transformation of Peter. You're like, this guy is a total knucklehead through the whole thing. And all of a sudden, he's preaching and people are coming to Christ. And you get this letter from Peter. It's First Peter in our Bibles. And he's talking about what it means to be a church leader later in his life. And in First Peter chapter 5, he identifies himself this way. He says, I'm writing to you, shepherds, as a fellow elder for the chief shepherd. He says, I want to remind you guys that your responsibility is to tend the flock willingly and lovingly so that when the shepherd appears, they will be presented blameless in his sight. Even for Peter, even for John, even for Paul, it's a secondary borrowed responsibility because Jesus is the head of his church. And everything we do is to point people to Christ. Not to us, not what a wonderful group of people we are, but the fact that we've been changed by Jesus. And you know what that does? It frees us up to serve in a way that we don't really care if we get glory. We only care if Jesus gets glory. We only care if people get pointed to him. And so what happens is God will put something on your heart. God will give you a dream. God will give you a talent. God will give you a longing or a passion, and he will start to equip you to fulfill it, and you're free to do it because it doesn't matter who gets credit as long as it's pointed to Jesus. And I was actually, I came this morning to the church about 6.15 because I realized that I hadn't turned the AC on this week like I usually do. I thought, this is not going to be a good service if it's 84 degrees in here. So I come out here about 6.15, I'm getting ready to turn the thermostats down, and when I walk up, there's a guy in our church who's out there, and he's just walking around the outside of the church, and so I go over and start talking to him, what are you doing? And he was like, I'm kind of embarrassed that you caught me here. In fact, he's not here. This would really embarrass him. But he said, I'm kind of embarrassed that you caught me here because one of my favorite things this summer has been to come down early on Sunday mornings and start at the welcome office and walk all the way to the church and pick up any trash that I see. I was like, oh, why, why do you do that? And he said, because there's something that God kind of laid on my heart that clean walkways, if you're a visitor, might lead somebody to come back here and think, this is a place that cares 
This is a place of excellence. This is a place where if you maybe have a clean pathway, you'll have cleaner hearts at the end of the service. I was like, okay, all right, I love this. This is awesome. And he says, and it's provided an opportunity for me to walk around and pray for everybody who's going to be here on a Sunday morning. Amen. And I thought, that's leadership. That's church leadership. Nobody sees it. Nobody directly knows that they're benefiting from it. But his heart has been captured by leading people to Christ. And he doesn't care. In fact, he would prefer if nobody knew that it was him. Because all he wants is for people to come and experience the love of Jesus Christ in our church. That's church leadership in a nutshell. Every kind of leadership has that same telos. God puts it on your heart. It's in line with his mission and we take care of it. We go after it. We solve the problem. We serve the people. We distribute what needs to be distributed. We teach. We train. We disciple. We encourage. Because leaders are called by God to point to Christ. Amen. Now here's the final thing I want to point out from this story in Acts chapter 6. The leaders are, when good leaders are chosen, the mission advances. When good leaders are chosen, the mission advances. So there's a book that I read in seminary that I've come back to many times called The Trellis and the Vine. It's a book on church leadership. And I think the concept that they introduce is so helpful in us thinking about how we function as a church. Here's their main point. You don't build trellises just because they look beautiful, which I some people actually do build trellises because they just look beautiful. But if you have the right idea in mind, you don't build a trellis just to have a trellis. You build a trellis so that your vine will be healthy, so that it will grow, it'll have space, it'll have sunlight, it'll be easy to water, it'll take the right shape and form. And really, you don't need any more trellis than, requires a, uh, than, a, than a fruitful vine requires because the point is the vine. And their point in, in the church is, the church is the trellis. All the programs and everything that we do, all the activities and all that, that's trellis work. Our goal is to have a healthy vine. We want to have healthy people. We want to have a healthy community. We want to have God-glorifying worship services. We want to preach the word of God so that people's lives are transformed. It reminds me of Acts chapter 2 where it says, there was awe among all the people at what God was doing in their midst. That's healthy vine right there. We are in awe of what God's doing in our midst. And you need to build trellis. You need to have things. You need to have programs. You need to have certain things that you do as a church to make sure that you have a healthy vine. But don't mistake the trellis for the vine. The methods that we use change all the time. The principles stay the same forever. The manifestations in a certain season of what it takes to have healthy, growing people might change. But the goal and the mission will never change. It's given by God to us. We couldn't change it if we wanted to. But we have been given a mission, and then we've been called to build in such a way that furthers the mission. So what the apostles show us is they're willing to change all kinds of things if it means that the mission of God is advancing. And one of the tests of good leaders is that they are willing to sacrifice their preferences, they're willing to use their gifts in certain seasons because it'll further the mission. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, which we're starting Ephesians next week, and we'll get there eventually, but in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a great passage about what leaders are supposed to do in the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, these are all leaders of some kind or another, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge in the Son of God, to full maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. That we might not be children anymore, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. From the whole body, joined together, held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a vision. These people are given. People that are shepherding, teaching, evangelizing, apostles, sharing, serving, all of that is for the mission that we might be a mature, fully functioning, loving church. That's the goal of leadership. And I was talking to a pastor in town the other day at this group that we get together. We have all a bunch of pastors in you follow that get together and just talk about what's going on and pray for each other. And one of these guys was saying, you know, COVID was like the hardest time in recent memory for pastors, which kind of surprises me in some ways. But I looked up some statistics on this. 4,000 churches closed in 2020 related to COVID and things going on in the church and leadership problems, and thousands and thousands of pastors quit. And what he was saying was, you know, during COVID, they stopped meeting for a while, he got out of his rhythm for a while, couldn't do hospital visits for a while, couldn't do small groups for a little bit, and he was like, I'm just having a hard time getting back up to the schedule that I was maintaining before 2020. He's like, I'm exhausted He's like, and I didn't realize until I stopped doing what I was doing how tired I was and how past my threshold was for what I was doing before COVID. He's like, and so now I don't know what to do because I can't do what I was doing. I'm not sure what to be doing. I can't fulfill all the needs of my people. I can't do everything that I wanted to do. And a couple of the other pastors and I were saying, this is a blessing to you. The role of a pastor is not to do everything. And a lot of churches hold their pastors to this standard. I'm glad ours doesn't. The proper understanding of the pastor is not the lead doer. If evangelism is going to be done, it's got to be the pastor. Teaching, got to be done. Care, got to be done by the pastor. That is not the biblical picture at all of what a pastor is supposed to be doing. Ephesians 4.11 says the pastor's role and many leaders in the church role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. See, what he had trained his people to think is they were not equipped to do ministry. Only he was equipped to do ministry. What he needs to re-encourage them is, you all are God's plan for the world. And I'm here to help. I'm here to encourage. I'm here to bring people along and train. And we're going to grow together. And we're going to equip each other to go do it. But the pastor is not the lead doer. The pastor is the steward of the mission. The pastor is the shepherd. The pastor is the equipper. But we as a body, when we are working well together, are all fulfilling the mission of God. There's, there's no exemption for Christians because you attend a church that's really active for you not to take on the mission yourself. See, godly leaders, when godly leaders are, are appointed and are serving in a church, the mission advances not because of them, but because they help everybody else to fulfill what God has put in their hearts. So as the church grows, something interesting happens. You get this story in Acts chapter 6, which is about seven men who are called table waiters. They're called servants. They're called deacons. 
And they're not called deacons in this passage, but what happens is over about a generation in the church, you do see a role arise that is called deacons. In fact, you get two roles in the church. There are elders and overseers, which are two terms that are used pretty interchangeably in the New Testament. And then you get deacons that are these kinds of people like the seven who were chosen to solve this problem, serve the people, care for the body. And by the time you get to 1 Timothy, so if we're thinking about a timeline here, Acts is written obviously following the time that Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, and 1 Timothy is probably written in the early 60s. So we've got somewhere around 30 years of church development and planted across the known world, in the Greek world, across all the way to Rome. Paul has been planting churches, and he's writing to his apprentice, one of his pastors that he's training up named Timothy, and he's giving him instructions about how to appoint church leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you get qualifications for overseer or elder, and in verse 8, qualifications and encouragement for deacons. And what we see in the early church is these two roles in different ways, in different places, and sometimes with different names, are the fulfillment of what the apostles and the seven started, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, devoting themselves to fellowship, worship, breaking bread, devoting themselves to the community of God and serving them. And so I want to just spend a minute, even even just as a sidebar, to talk about deacons, because we as a church are going to appoint deacons in about a month. And what we've been doing as a church is we've been growing. We have elders that were appointed before I got here. We have a pastor. Now, we believe that the Bible says you should have deacons. And in fact, we don't just need deacons biblically, we need deacons practically, We've got some areas of care in our church, and we've got some areas to serve our congregation that we need more people to step up and serve in this role. And so what Paul says is, I'm going to give you things to look for in a deacon. So it says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must, must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Let me dive into this for a minute because the way that churches do deacons is an area of diversity that is probably okay because there's a lot of ambiguity in how this should be done. So you may come from a background that didn't have deacons, that had all-male deacons, that had deacons that were functioning as elders, that had women serving with men as deacons. And if you go back two weeks, we talked about the capital C church and the little C church. Capital C church is things like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Little C churches go a step further and say, what are these secondary issues and how do we work them out in our context? So what I want to tell you is, here's what we as elders have been studying and praying and thinking about how to do deacons biblically in our context. But you may come from another church and you go here and there and have a different conception of deacons. And we could actually get together and talk about it because we're both trying to figure out what the Bible says. And so I want to walk you through what I think this passage says and what our elders think, and then talk about how we're going to do deacons in our context. So here's the interesting thing about this passage. Elders and deacons, both character-based qualifications. 
everything at the first part of this is they need to be well thought of. They need to have high character. They need to not be a recent convert. They need to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience is what it says about deacons. They need to be able to teach is what it says about elders. But the deacons have one very mysterious, unique qualification. In both cases, elders and deacons, it says, let the elder or let the deacon be the husband of one wife. But with the deacons, all of a sudden, you switch in the description to verse 11 where it says, there are wives likewise. Now, that word for wives is just the word for women. In fact, this is all over your New Testament. The word for wife and the word for woman are the same word, and you judge by the context which one is meant. So if you're talking about a family, a lot of times it means a wife. Or if you're talking about a husband, usually when you see that word, it means wife. But all over the New Testament, you see that word, and it just means women. So the women went to the tomb, same word. And uh, husbands love your wives, same word. So there's an ambiguity here, and you have to judge by the context what's being meant every time you see it. Now, what's interesting to me in this passage is why would you have qualifications for an elder that don't mention wives or women? And then all of a sudden in deacons you say, and likewise, in the same way, women or wives ought to have these qualities. Some people take this passage to mean that in order to serve as a deacon, a man who is married must have his wife also meet certain qualities, and then he is the deacon, but she has to pass this test. That seems kind of odd to me, given that elders do not do that. Elders are just, here's your qualities, and there's some household stuff in here, but there's not this kind of second qualification. Others think that this just means women in general. So you got male deacons and you have female deacons. But the thing to me would be like, why would they have different qualities? Why not just say, all deacons should hit these qualities? Something different is going on in this text. And actually in church history, one of the things we see certain churches doing and understanding this passage is, and this is what I think it means, husbands and wives, especially in deacon work, are called to serve together. Deacon work is family work. It's care work, it's hospitality work, it's fellowship work, it's often problem-solving work, it's leading teams, it's mobilizing people. That's what deacons do. And so what this passage seems to indicate is you really need both of them involved because they're going to do this work together. So about four months ago, our elders started praying about this. And we said, what does God require? And what does he say about deacons? And the more we studied and we wrote, I wrote a white paper about it, we discussed it, we prayed about it, we talked to some wise leaders about it. We think that this describes couples serving together both as deacons. So the deacon is a husband and a wife serving, called, qualified together. And in fact, we're not like the only people, because that's always dangerous in the history of the church. You're like, we're the only people that have figured this out. You're like, okay, <laughs> 2,000 years, a lot of smart people, but good thing we got you guys. There are a lot of churches that see it this way, but I want you to know that there are a lot of churches that actually see it slightly differently than this. And like I said, that's okay. This is just how we think in our context the Bible calls us to do deacons. So in about a month, what we're going to do is we're going to put forward some couples in our church who have been serving in the capacity of deacons. And uh, that's because in this passage it says, let a deacon be tested first and then recognize them. You don't appoint and make deacons out of thin air. You recognize who God has put something on their heart and they're serving, and you say, we want to recognize the kind of deacon work that you're doing. 
So deacon work is family work. Elder work is family work. But the qualifications lead us to believe that we should recognize the husband and the wife together as deacons. Now, you may have questions on this, or you may be like, all right, I didn't even know. I've only come here one time. Why are we talking about this? But if you want to talk more about this, please let me know. We'll also put out our position on this on our website this week, so be looking for that. And if we need to pick up the dialogue in a, in a back and forth and just get into this text and talk about it, we believe that the Bible mandates what we do. And you can read the Bible, we can read the Bible, and we can talk about it together. So we want to be in a place as a church where we have godly leaders as described by the Bible because we want the mission to flourish. More than anything else, we want to see Christ glorified in Carlton Landing, the surrounding areas, the five major cities that most people come from. We want to be a beacon of light for the gospel to all of the outside areas. And if there's a chorus in the book of Acts, and this is where I'll close, if there's a chorus in the book of Acts, it's that the word of God continued to increase and they were filled with joy. If you just sit down and read the book of Acts, you'll see this over and over and over. In chapter two, at Pentecost, Peter preaches, and they were the word of God increased, and they multiplied and were filled with joy. In chapter 12, Herod is persecuting the church. He imprisons Peter, and this group of people have it on their hearts from God to start leading by praying for Peter's release, and God shakes the place. He frees Peter, and he comes back, and it says, and the word increased, and it prevailed mightily. In chapter 19, you get this crazy story, I wish we had time to talk about, of these itinerant Jewish exorcists. This really does exist in the book of Acts. And they're going around casting out demons, these seven sons of Sceva. And the apostles are there, and this demon just beats up all of these brothers because he doesn't recognize that they're coming in the name of Christ. And awe falls on all the people, and they begin to turn to Jesus because of this incident. And what it says afterwards is all the people who had been doing this kind of thing, everybody that was acquainted with the magical arts, it said, brought their magic books together and they put them in a pile and they burned them. It was like thousands of dollars of stuff. And they turned their lives over to Christ, it says, and the word of God increased and it multiplied and it prevailed mightily. The last line of the book of Acts, Paul is preaching under house arrest in Rome. He is hindered, but Luke says, but the word of God was triumphing boldly and it was un hindered. The goal is that the word would be multiplied. We would be filled with joy. Our community would be what we see in the Bible. And I think about what would the history of our church be at these specific junctures. You know, God calls a group of people to form a small group in this new town that isn't even a thing yet. And they begin worshiping. And the word of God increases. And the people are filled with joy. And then they buy a tent. And the people multiply. And they are filled with joy. And God calls families to serve by leading worship and setting up and tearing down and giving of their time and money and their talents. And God starts putting on people's hearts to have a building. And so all of a sudden you have a building and we've multiplied and our joy has grown. And I think the church has a passion for caring for one another, for lifting up Christ. And we're multiplying. And we're filled with joy. And God is raising up leaders who are passionate about missions and congregational care and serving in Eufaula and serving one another and preaching and teaching and discipling. And all I want to know is, what is God going to do through what he puts in your heart to do as a leader in our church? Amen. Not just this church, any church that you're a part of. What can we do to see the mission flourish through godly character and leadership? I want our community 
to reflect the fellowship of God. That it would be a certain kind of community with certain kinds of relationships that lead us to love God more, to overflow with what he's doing. In order to do that, we have to have godly leaders. And so pray, ask God. When he puts something on your heart, step out, do it. We're here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And God has that for each of us. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to never do, which is sustain your church, build your church, protect your church. Father, we know that uh, we are just like people getting a baton and quickly passing it off, that you have been sustaining and building your church for 2,000 years. It didn't start with us. It will not end with us. But we want to be faithful in the time we have. Father, I pray that as we're sitting here studying your word, you would fill us with the same joy and the same mission and the same tenacity that the early church had. Father, build us into a church that has the kind of fellowship that's like being reunited with you. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another. Help us not to sacrifice one part of what you've called us to do for others. Father, help us to devote ourselves to your word, to fellowship, to worship, breaking bread, and to prayer. Lord, would you emblazon those on our heart as a people that we might see many people come to know you, many people transformed. Give us an awe of what you're doing in our church and in the surrounding area, Lord. Father, we ask you to do this because you love to do it through your spirit and through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand as we sing.